0: Section 6 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colleen McMahon. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 1. Profiles of Disorder. Introduction. The President directed the Commission to produce A profile of the riots, of the rioters, of their environment, of their victims, of their causes and effects. In response to this mandate, the Commission constructed profiles of the riots in 10 of the 23 cities under investigation. Brief summaries of what were often conflicting views and perceptions of confusing episodes. They are, we believe, a fair and accurate picture of what happened. From the profiles, we have sought to build a composite view of the riots, as well as of the environment out of which they erupted. The summer of 1967 was not the beginning of the current wave of disorders. Omens of violence had appeared much earlier. 1963-64 In 1963, serious disorders involving both whites and Negroes broke out in Birmingham, Savannah, Cambridge, Maryland, Chicago, and Philadelphia. Sometimes the mobs battled each other. More often, they fought the police. The most violent encounters took place in Birmingham. Police used dogs, fire hoses, and cattle prods against marchers, many of whom were children. White racists shot at Negroes and bombed Negro residences. Negroes retaliated by burning white-owned businesses in Negro areas. On a quiet Sunday morning, a bomb exploded beneath a Negro church. Four young girls in a Sunday school class were killed. In the spring of 1964, the arrest and conviction of civil rights demonstrators provoked violence in Jacksonville. A shot fired from a passing car killed a Negro woman. When a bomb threat forced evacuation of an all-Negro high school, the students stoned policemen and firemen and burned the cars of newsmen. For the first time, Negroes used Molotov cocktails in setting fires. Two weeks later, at a demonstration protesting school segregation in Cleveland, a bulldozer accidentally killed a young white minister. When police moved in to disperse a crowd composed primarily of Negroes, violence erupted. In late June, white segregationists broke through police lines and attacked civil rights demonstrators in St. Augustine, Florida. In Philadelphia, Mississippi, law enforcement officers were implicated in the lynch murders of three civil rights workers. On July 10th, Ku Klux Klansmen shot and killed a Negro U.S. Army Lieutenant Colonel, Lemuel Penn, as he was driving through Georgia. On July 16th, in New York City, several young Negroes walking to summer school classes became involved in a dispute with a white building superintendent. When an off-duty police lieutenant intervened, a 15-year-old boy attacked him with a knife. The officer shot and killed the boy. A crowd of teenagers gathered and smashed store windows. Police arrived in force and dispersed the group. On the following day, the Progressive Labor Movement, a Marxist-Leninist organization, printed and passed out inflammatory leaflets charging the police with brutality. On the second day after the shooting, a rally called by the Congress of Racial Equality to protest the Mississippi lynch murders developed into a march on a precinct police station. The crowd clashed with the police. One person was killed and 12 police officers and 19 citizens were injured. For several days thereafter, the pattern was repeated. Despite exhortations of Negro community leaders against violence, protest rallies became uncontrollable. Police battled mobs in Harlem and in the Bedford-Stuyvesant section of Brooklyn. Firemen fought fires started with Molotov cocktails. When bricks and bottles were thrown, police responded with gunfire, Widespread looting followed, and many persons were injured. A week later, a riot broke out in Rochester when police tried to arrest an intoxicated Negro youth at a street dance. After two days of violence, the National Guard restored order. During the first two weeks of August, disorders took place in three New Jersey communities, Jersey City, Elizabeth, and Patterson. On August 15th, when a white liquor store owner in the Chicago suburb of Dixmoor had a Negro woman arrested for stealing a bottle of whiskey, he was accused of having manhandled her. A crowd gathered in front of the store, broke the store window, and threw rocks at passing cars. The police restored order. The next day, when the disturbance was renewed, a Molotov cocktail set the liquor store afire. Several persons were injured. The final violence of the summer occurred in Philadelphia. A Negro couple's car stalled in an intersection in an area known as the Jungle, where, with almost 2,000 persons living in each block, there is the greatest incidence of crime, disease, unemployment, and poverty in the city. When two police officers, one white and one black, attempted to move the car, the wife of the owner became abusive, and the officers arrested her. Police officers and Negro spectators gathered at the scene. Two nights of rioting, resulting in extensive damage, followed. 1965. In the spring of 1965, the nation's attention shifted back to the South. When civil rights workers staged a nonviolent demonstration in Selma, Alabama, police and state troopers forcibly interrupted their march. Within the next few weeks, racists murdered a white clergyman and a white housewife active in civil rights. In the small Louisiana town of Bogalusa, When Negro demonstrators attacked by whites received inadequate police protection, the Negroes formed a self-defense group called the Deacons for Defense and Justice. As late as the second week of August, there had been few disturbances outside the South. But on the evening of August 11th, as Los Angeles sweltered in a heat wave, a highway patrolman halted a young Negro driver for speeding. The young man appeared intoxicated, and the patrolman arrested him. As a crowd gathered, law enforcement officers were called to the scene. A highway patrolman mistakenly struck a bystander with his billy club. A young Negro woman, who was accused of spitting on the police, was dragged into the middle of the street. When the police departed, members of the crowd began hurling rocks at passing cars, beating white motorists and overturning cars and setting them on fire. The police reacted hesitantly. Actions they did take further inflamed the people on the streets. The following day, the area was calm. Community leaders attempting to mediate between Negro residents and the police received little cooperation from municipal authorities. That evening, the previous night's pattern of violence was repeated. Not until almost 30 hours after the initial flare-up did window smashing, looting, and arson begin, yet the police utilized only a small part of their forces. Few police were on hand the next morning when huge crowds gathered in the business district of Watts two miles from the location of the original disturbance, and began looting. In the absence of police response, the looting became bolder and spread into other areas. Hundreds of women and children from five housing projects clustered in or near Watts took part. Around noon, extensive firebombing began. Few white persons were attacked. The principal intent of the rioters now seemed to be to destroy property owned by whites in order to drive white exploiters out of the ghetto. The chief of police asked for National Guard help, but the arrival of the military units was delayed for several hours. When the guardsmen arrived, they, together with police, made heavy use of firearms. Reports of sniper fire increased. Several persons were killed by mistake. Many more were injured. Thirty-six hours after the first guard units arrived, the main force of the riot had been blunted. Almost 4,000 persons were arrested. Thirty-four were killed and hundreds injured approximately $35 million in damage had been inflicted. The Los Angeles riot, the worst in the United States since the Detroit riot of 1943, shocked all who had been confident that race relations were improving in the North and evoked a new mood in Negro ghettos across the country. 1966. The events of 1966 made it appear that domestic turmoil had become part of the American scene. In March, a fight between several Negroes and Mexican Americans resulted in a new flare up in Watts. In May, after a police officer accidentally shot and killed a Negro, demonstrations by Negro militants again increased tension in Los Angeles. Evidence was accumulating that a major proportion of riot participants were youths. Increasing race pride, skepticism about their job prospects, and dissatisfaction with the inadequacy of their education caused unrest among students in Negro colleges and high schools throughout the country. Students and youths were the principal participants in at least six of the 13 spring and early summer disorders of 1966. July 12, 1966, was a hot day in Chicago. Negro youngsters were playing in water gushing from an illegally opened fire hydrant. Two police officers arriving on the scene closed the hydrant. A Negro youth turned it on again, and the police officers arrested him. A crowd gathered. Police reinforcements arrived. As the crowd became unruly, seven Negro youth were arrested. Rumors spread that the arrested youths had been beaten and that police were turning off fire hydrants in Negro neighborhoods, but leaving them on in white areas. Sporadic window breaking, rock throwing, and firebombing lasted for several hours. Most of the participants were teenagers. In Chicago, as in other cities, the long-standing grievances of the Negro community needed only minor incidents to trigger violence. In 1961, when Negroes, after being evacuated from a burning tenement, had been sheltered in a church in an all-white area, a crowd of residents had gathered and threatened to attack the church unless the Negroes were removed. Segregated schools and housing had led to repeated picketing and marches by civil rights organizations. When marchers had gone into white neighborhoods, they had been met on several occasions by KKK signs and crowds throwing eggs and tomatoes. In 1965, when a Chicago fire truck had killed a Negro woman in an accident, Negroes had congregated to protest against the fire station's all-white compliment. Rock throwing and looting had broken out. More than 170 persons were arrested in two days. On the evening of July 13, 1966, the day after the fire hydrant incident, rock throwing, looting, and firebombing began again. For several days thereafter, the pattern of violence was repeated. Police responding to calls were subjected to random gunfire. Rumors spread. The press talked in highly exaggerated terms of guerrilla warfare and sniper fire. Before the police and 4,200 National Guardsmen managed to restore order, scores of civilians and police had been injured. There were 533 arrests, including 155 juveniles. Three Negroes were killed by stray bullets, among them a 13-year-old boy and a 14-year-old pregnant girl. Less than a week later, Ohio National Guardsmen were mobilized to deal with an outbreak of rioting that continued for four nights in the Huff section of Cleveland. It is probable that Negro extremists, though they neither instigated nor organized the disorder, exploited and enlarged it. Amidst widespread reports of sniper fire, four Negroes, including one young woman, were killed. Many others, several children among them, were injured. Law enforcement officers were responsible for two of the deaths, a white man firing from a car for a third, and a group of young white vigilantes for the fourth. Some news media keeping tally sheets of the disturbances began to apply the term riot to acts of vandalism and relatively minor disorders. At the end of July, the National States Rights Party, a white extremist organization that advocates deporting Negroes and other minorities, preached racial hatred at a series of rallies in Baltimore. Bands of white youths were incited into chasing and beating Negroes. A court order halted the rallies. Forty-three disorders and riots were reported during 1966. Although there were considerable variations in circumstances, intensity and length, They were usually ignited by a minor incident fueled by antagonism between the Negro population and the police. Spring 1967 In the spring of 1967, disorders broke out at three southern Negro universities at which SNCC, Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a militant anti-white organization, had been attempting to organize the students. On Friday, April 7th, learning that Stokely Carmichael was speaking at two primarily Negro universities, Fisk and Tennessee A&I in Nashville, and receiving information that some persons were preparing to riot, the police adopted an emergency riot plan. On the following day, Carmichael and others, including South Carolina Senator Strom Thurmond, spoke at a symposium at Vanderbilt University. That evening, the Negro operator of a restaurant located near Fisk University summoned police to arrest an allegedly intoxicated Negro soldier. Within a few minutes, students, many of them members of SNCC, began to picket the restaurant. A squad of riot police arrived and soon became the focus of attention. Spectators gathered. When a city bus was halted and attacked by members of the crowd, a Negro police lieutenant fired five shots into the air. Rocks and bottles were thrown, and additional police were called into the area. Officers fired a number of shots over the heads of the crowd. The students and spectators gradually dispersed. On the following evening, after negotiations between students and police broke down, crowds again began forming. Police fired over their heads, and shots were fired back at the police. On the fringes of the campus, several white youths aimed shots at a police patrol wagon. A few days later, when police raided the home of several young Negro militants, they confiscated a half-dozen bottles prepared as Molotov cocktails. About a month later, students at Jackson State College in Jackson, Mississippi, were standing around after a political rally when two Negro police officers pursued a speeding car driven by a Negro student onto the campus. When the officers tried to arrest the driver, the students interfered. The police called for reinforcements. A crowd of several hundred persons quickly gathered and a few rocks were thrown. On the following evening, an even larger crowd assembled. When police attempted to disperse it by gunfire, three persons were hit. One of them, a young Negro, died the next day. The National Guard restored order. Six days later, on May 16th, two separate Negro protests were taking place in Houston. One group was picketing a garbage dump in a Negro residential neighborhood where a Negro child had drowned. Another was demonstrating at a junior high school on the grounds that Negro students were disciplined more harshly than white. That evening, college students who had participated in the protests returned to the campus of Texas Southern University. About 50 of them were grouped around a 21-year-old student, D.W., a Vietnam veteran, who was seeking to stimulate further protest action. A dispute broke out, and D.W. reportedly slapped another student. When the student threatened D.W., he left, armed himself with a pistol, and returned. In response to the report of a disturbance, two unmarked police cars with four officers arrived. Two of the officers questioned D.W., discovered he was armed with a pistol, and arrested him. A short time later, when one of the police cars returned to the campus, it was met by rocks and bottles thrown by students. As police called for reinforcements, sporadic gunshots reportedly came from the men's dormitory the police returned the fire. For several hours, gunfire punctuated unsuccessful attempts by community leaders to negotiate a truce between the students and the police. When several tar barrels were set afire in the street and shooting broke out again, police decided to enter the dormitory. A patrolman struck by a ricocheting bullet was killed. After clearing all 480 occupants from the building, police searched it and found one shotgun and two caliber pistols the origin of the shot that killed the officer was not determined. As the summer of 1967 approached, Americans, conditioned by three years of reports of riots, expected violence. But they had no answers to hard questions. What was causing the turmoil? Was it organized, and if so, by whom? Was there a pattern to the disorders? End of Section 6. Recording by Colleen McMahon.